The previous one we finished up, except I added some more. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So what was number six? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I just added to the end of that a little caution. We talked about the fact that sometimes people skip the interpretation part and just read a text and want to apply it with before they really know what it says or what it means. That's a problem. There's another problem, and that is the way you um, come across applications. I have a book, actually it's on my computer. Um, it's called How to Apply the Bible. That title kind of took me a step or two back. I, just seems odd, you know, that you have a system for applying the Bible. Uh, and the, the author does come up with a system. And so many of the things he says in the book are good. You know, he talks about the need to interpret, you know, before you apply and all of that stuff. So that's good. But at the same time, he has a system for dealing with applications. One chapter in the book is how to find applications in the Bible. I'm thinking, you, you don't find applications through a system. You read the text, and as you're reading and interpreting, the Spirit illumines your mind so you understand what the meaning of the text is, and the Spirit tells you how to apply it. To me, applications are organic. They, they happen as you're in the process of reading and studying and understanding. It's not that you go through this step and this step and this step and there you have an application. That bothers me. So application is what it's all about. You know, James says in chapter one, if you look at what's in the word and you see the kind of person you are and you just walk away, it doesn't do you any good. You have to be a doer of the word, you have to apply it. But I think the spirit is in charge of applications. So that's all I added to that. So number seven, what's number seven again? Awareness of Bible Awareness of Bible. We talked about this already earlier in our series. Awareness of Bible version priorities. Because the different versions of the Bible focus on different things. And if you are going to understand what a particular verse means or passage I mean you have to look at the Bible you're reading it from to understand what the Bible what that particular version of the Bible is focusing on well there are several kinds several uh, priorities and several reasons that people choose the Bible that they choose you have Bibles that um, people choose simply because they're used to them they're familiar with them I grew up in the King James Version. Most of the Bible verses I memorized are in King James. You know, some people stick with that you know, just because it's comfortable. Then you have the versions that are based more on the grammar and the, um, the structure of the original. 
Remember, the first principle was the priority of the original languages. So the closer you can get to the original grammar, the better understanding you have of how the ideas were formed in the original language and what they mean. The problem with that is they don't, that doesn't always come across smoothly in English because Greek grammar and English grammar are not the same. <laughs> so if you try to copy Greek grammar into English grammar, it's going to be a little awkward at times. Then you have versions that focus on the ideas rather than the words and the grammar. Versions like the New International Version and, and others. We'll talk more about these in a minute. Really, to me, those are not translations. They're more like commentaries. Because a translation says this is what this word is in the original language and the equivalent word in the target language is this word. So the Greek word for flesh is sarks. So the translator would say, oh, the Greek has sarks. So in English, that's flesh. And so you see the word flesh because that's the equivalent in the Greek. But versions like the NIV and other idea versions will do some interpreting instead of translating. And we'll see examples of that again in a few minutes. So the grammar-based versions are, I think, a little more accurate than the idea-based versions. The grammar-based versions, again, stick with what's the equivalent between the original and the target language. The idea versions, they kind of tell you what it means. It's not a one-to-one -one equivalency. It's an idea to an idea. This is the idea in the Greek, and this is the way we would say it in English. It makes for smoother reading, but it's less accurate. And they also do some translating in there because they're translating the idea. They're telling you what they think the idea in the original should sound like in English. So they're doing a little bit of um, interpretation there. Maybe they think they're being helpful. And I suppose in some cases it may be. But the more you mess with things, <laughs> the further away from the reality you get. And you have other versions that are uh, paraphrases. Uh, they deal with ideas as well, but they, they focus more on English idioms. So when they're translating an idea from Greek into English, they'll put it into our modern street language English. An idiom is we talked about this before. An idiom is a statement that says something or means something different than it says. And the illustration I gave before was you go to the doctor, you check in for your appointment, and the receptionist says, take a chair. And she doesn't mean pick up a chair and leave. She means sit down. So take a chair in that case is an idiom. It means something different than it says. So the paraphrase versions take that idea in the original and like the NIV and other idea versions, they put it into an English statement. But it's not just the way we would say it in English, but the way the man on the street would say it. You know, common everyday kind of English. The Living Bible is probably, I think, was probably the first one of those back in the 60s, I think. A guy by the name, I think it was Kent Taylor. He had, he, he 
had been through seminary, you know, he knows all, you know, how to interpret and all that stuff. I forget where he was working at the time, but he commuted to work and back on the bus. And so he used the time on the bus to paraphrase the King James Version. He put it in modern English, you know, regular English. Very easy to read, but you got to step back and think, now how close is it to the original meaning? That's always a, uh, a concern. I gave you this handout way back when. Yeah, I had intended this handout to be used tonight in this, in this section, okay? But the issue came up earlier, so we, we looked at it earlier. But this kind of shows you from the bottom up the older manuscripts and stuff and, and how they developed into the newer translations. And across the top, you have the newer translations, well, actually some of the older ones as well, going from a word-for-word word word translation to an idea transfer. So the further you get to the right, the, the looser it is, okay? And the, the left is a little tighter. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at this. It's just there is a reference. And I think probably for our purposes, the most useful part of this chart is the line across the top, where it goes from the left with the NASB, which is the, the closest to the original grammar and wording. And the far extreme on the right is, is the CEB. And the column on the right there, they explain what each of these translations uh, is about, if you can read it. So the CEB is Common English Bible, that's what CEB means. It's a new translation, accessible, produced by, what does it say there, mainline churches. Mainline churches are like Methodist, Presbyterian, most of which are kind of liberal. So we're dealing with interpretation. The version of the Bible you use when you're working on interpretation is crucial. You've got to know what it focuses on. The paraphrases, for example, are trying to make it easy to read, but they're paraphrases. They're not a translation. They're somebody's idea of what a passage means. Chuck Swindoll, I don't know if you listen to him, he's on at 3 in the morning, 3 to 3.30. He uses the New Living Translation when he reads from the Bible, which is a paraphrase. But he knows what he's doing. He's been through the original, so he has a foundation. So if there's something in the New Living Translation that is not quite kosher, he can pick it out, you know, and he can make the correction. So which version you choose to use is, is very important. I have another handout here to illustrate the differences between some of these versions based on one passage, just to give you an idea of differences. Okay, so on this handout that I just gave you, it's, it's kind of self-explanatory, so let's go ahead and start with the introduction. It says, people choose between Bible translations for a variety of reasons. Some go with the translation that their church uses because it's convenient. Others are interested in the accuracy of the translation. Others are interested in ease of reading. 
Still others simply feel more comfortable with a certain translation than they do with other translations. All of these reasons are justifiable since they meet felt needs. However, since having an accurate understanding of Scripture is central to correct doctrine and an effective Christian life, one's choice of which translation to use is crucial. And in parentheses there, we have 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for da-da-da-da-da. It's your guidebook for life, basically. And 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to show yourself approved of God. Rightly dividing, the King James says, or handling accurately, New American Standard says, the word of truth. You, you've got to get a version that's going to enable you to do that. You need to be careful with that. So we go on. Translations that have been around for a long time and so are familiar to most people may be mostly accurate, but the language is outdated and can be confusing. In addition, new discoveries in language and culture have shown them to be less than accurate in some places, simply because the writers were ignorant of the facts. Strict translations, those that give the English equivalent to the Hebrew or Greek text, reflect the grammar of the original and are the most accurate, but can make for awkward reading in English. Translations that focus on representing the ideas of the original rather than the words and grammar are more interpretive and so less accurate, but make for smoother reading in English. These are not so much translations as they are commentaries. Some versions are not translations at all, but an attempt to put the original ideas into idiomatic English. These are paraphrases, and their accuracy depends on how well the author understands the original. Perhaps a good balance can be achieved by using various translations for different purposes. For example, one could use a good strict translation study Bible in order to get an accurate understanding of the text to apply to his life, and a paraphrase for smooth devotional reading, as long as he understands the meaning behind the paraphrase. Then we have a chart which shows some, some variations in the reading from these different kinds of uh, versions. On the right, you have the categories, which we summarized a few minutes ago. Down the left, we have the examples in those categories. I started with the Greek, just in case you wanted to do some comparison. But I put only verse 18 in there because I couldn't, if I put all three verses in that Greek one, I'd have to make the chart a lot smaller, and it's already small enough. <laughs> so to get it all on one page and make it readable, I put only one verse in it. So this is based on Romans 7, verses 18 to 20. And I chose this because it's a real tongue twister. So you can see how different versions handle uh, this this passage. For context, remember in chapter 7, Paul is struggling with, with why, if he is a new creature in Christ, he still has trouble with sin. You know, he's debating that issue with himself. And so this is part of his solution to that dilemma. So the King James, you need to hang on to your secret of says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, 
but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now we don't talk like that anymore. The structure of the sentences is not what we're used to. The word choice is not what we're used to. If you grew up with the King James, you might piece it together because you're familiar with that. But it's not easy. The New King James is almost the same. It says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, or I will do, that is will to do, excuse me, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. A little smoother than the original King James, but we're dealing with the same problems. New American Standard, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The ESV is close to that, a little different in terminology. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Then we go into the ideas versions. The NIV says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then the Bible in basic English uh, says, For I am conscious that in me, that is in my flesh, there is nothing good. Now, I have the mind, but not the power to do what is right. For the good which I have a mind to do, I do not. But the evil which I have no mind to do, that I do. But if I do what I have no mind to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me. Then we get to the paraphrases. The New Living Translation, second edition, says, And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And then finally, the Amplified Bible, which is hard to read, by the way, because it keeps interrupting itself. The Amplified Bible says, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, my human nature, my worldliness, my sinful capacity. For the willingness to do good 
is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, that is, it is not me that acts, but the sin, nature, which lives in me. So the Amplified Bible adds little clarifications in, uh, within the text. This last verse has always felt like a cop-out. <laughs> it, it really does. Okay, I'm not doing it. It's sin in me that's yeah. doing it. Well, so it's not me doing it. It's sin. Yeah. Well, what's in you but sin? What's you? Well, that's Paul's dilemma. Okay, this kind of summarizes his problem. And his, his conclusion after he goes through this is, I am not choosing to sin. It's not in my will, it's not in my mind, it's not in my heart to sin. In my heart, he says earlier, I want to please God. <laughs> I want to do what's right. I don't want to do what's wrong. Therefore, because he is not choosing to sin, He's not the one doing the sinning because it's, it's, it's a willful thing. Remember at the crucifixion, Jesus prayed for those who were crucifying it. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When they killed him, the Roman soldiers had no idea they were killing the Messiah. They were executioners. They did this all the time. You know, this is just another criminal that needs to be crucified. So because they did not willfully kill the Messiah, Christ is saying, don't hold them guilty for this because it wasn't a willful act. And that's what Paul is saying. I don't willfully sin. I don't intentionally say, I don't care what you say, God, I'm going to do what I want. But he says, I do it anyway. I, I keep sinning, but I'm not wanting to sin. Therefore, it's not my fault. In the broader context, he says, what is it then that makes me do this? It's this stupid body, the flesh. And you notice some of these um, translations translate that word flesh as the old sin nature. The word flesh in the New Testament never refers to the old sin nature. I did a study of that. It refers to a lot of things, but never to the old sin nature. Most usually it refers to the body, our flesh. And Paul mentions that in Romans 7. He says, I see this principle living in me that is in the members of my body. The principle of sin. So it's the sin-trained body that keeps dragging us into sin. We don't willfully do it. We're not choosing to rebel against God. Therefore, it's not our sin. I know it sounds strange. It really comes down to evidence. He continues the idea at the beginning of chapter 8. The first verse of chapter 8, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. Why? Because he didn't sin. He didn't choose to sin. It wasn't his fault. Therefore he's not condemned for that. And he goes on in chapter 8 to say the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. That's not saying that what you focus on determines the outcome, but what you focus on is evidence of whether or not you're saved. 
So the mind that's set on the flesh, that is the body, the person who lives in order to satisfy his physical appetites, whatever they might be, is obviously not saved. You know, John talks about this in 1 John. You know, the one who says he knows God but lives a sinful lifestyle doesn't really know God. Yeah. So when they say you're a carnal Christian, that doesn't sense. No, it doesn't. That's because if you're carnal, then you're not living this. Right. I think that's one of our our traditional beliefs that doesn't really fit the Bible. Yeah. Because the, the focus on the flesh, the carnality, is evidence of not being saved. Focusing on the Spirit and obeying God is evidence of salvation. So that's what Paul is saying through, through chapter 7, actually even back into chapter 6. Because he has a new spirit, a new person, he, and he knows that because his desire is to please God and not to rebel. He knows he's saved. Therefore, when he falls into sin, he didn't choose to sin. It snuck up on him and grabbed him, <laughs> these stupid fleshly appetite. And so he says, therefore, because I didn't choose to sin, I'm not held responsible for it because I didn't rebel. Terry, I think it's interesting that um, in chapter 8, verse 2, um, the, the pronoun changes from the King James I to the pronoun you. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Um, I memorized that chapter in the old King, in the um, New King James, and this seems to shift the focus. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's quite different. It's application. This this is the New American Standard. Mm -hmm. It just, it really seems to make a difference in some cases, um, the translation that you use. Yes. That's why if somebody comes to you and says, what does this passage mean? And they hand you their Bible. You've got to look at what version of the Bible that is to know what you're dealing with. If they hand you a paraphrase, I would say, well, let me get back to you on that, and then I'll go home and check it out. But all the versions that you've given us, the Amplified Bible on verse 20 is the only one that recognizes that the sin is illegal. No. They're taking, it's taking, but the sin which lives in me. Yeah, when he's, but see, that's again a paraphrase, because Paul says, in my flesh. It's the sin is in the flesh. It's not in his spirit. His spirit has been regenerated. His body has not. And he says earlier in the chapter that he sees a, two principles at work. You have the principle of his spirit, which wants to please God, and you have the principle of death, which still lives in his body. So that's why he's struggling with it. He can't get away from it. As much as he wants to please God and doesn't want to sin, he's trapped. 
as he says at the end of the chapter, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? You know, it's this stupid body that keeps dragging me down. And he ends that chapter by saying, thanks be to God, because Christ has taken care of that. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those daily slips into sin, because we are not choosing to sin. We're not held responsible for it. We're not condemned for it. It's already been forgiven at salvation. And it kind of goes back to the old covenant and all of those sacrifices were sacrifices for unconscious sins, sins that the people did not intend to do. There's no sacrifice for intentional rebellion against God. Didn't that leave them completely hopeless? Because everybody commits deliberate, intentional sin. Mm -hmm. There was no sacrifice for that. Well, Paul, uh, I mean, David says, deliver me from presumptuous sins. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And, yes. and, but there are sins that we do that are of the flesh. For example, greed. Mm -hmm. I don't set out to be greedy about something, but I find my own flesh mm -hmm. responds to something. Well, that's a good question. I haven't really looked into that in great detail, but if you go back to numbers, the 40 years in the wilderness, the people who rebelled against God, what happened to them? They were executed on the spot. Mm -hmm. Now, that was severe rebellion. You know, that's not, not a personal thing like someone says, well, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I don't think I want to do that today. I guess you have to go back to um, the principle of uh, Abraham believing God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The sacrifices were not adequate. I think it's David also, maybe somebody else, that says that God knows or remem remembers that we are dust. He understands our weaknesses, and he's gracious. And being weak and being actually rebellious. Well, yeah, but... Because when you said willful sin, that's being rebellious against, because they had the law, they knew what was right and what was wrong. Mm-hmm. They willfully disobey. So. Right. No, I know. Right. What's his name? Cain flashes in the mind. You know, he directly rebelled against God. But they got yeah, exactly. He executed. Yeah. So he, uh, he offered him a way out. Yeah. Well, who was it that rebelled against Moses? Or whatever, I don't yeah. Well, we're a little off track. That's okay.
So the, the main thing here, since we're dealing with interpretation, is you want to have a version that is going to give you an accurate understanding of, of what's being said. If you find one of these more comfortable to read, then use it for that. But if you want to study, then get the version that's going to give you the, the details. But even reading, I was given a New Living Translation uh, I read it. I did it for my, my daily reading for, for years. And I would come to certain passages and say, they're not saying what I always thought this meant. So I'd go look it up in one of the other translations, like the NASB or ESB that I had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, but they paraphrased it. You know, yeah. Wrong. That's the problem with paraphrasing. Yeah. The message is really that way. Yeah. 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 And the message is lost. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Even for God's Son of the World, it, the translation and these paraphrases is, just doesn't, I don't know, it just sound, doesn't sound right. Because mm -hmm. that's what you're not used to. Exactly. Yeah. I used to tell my writing students, when I'm showing them how to use English correctly, you know, I tell them, you, this may sound wrong to you, but that's only because you're used to doing it wrong. <laughs> this is right. <laughs> Twelve angry men on the other day. And, and basically say, they don't even speak good English. Right? <laughs> he was butchering the language, talking about the other people that speak good English. <laughs> yes. All right. So we're out of time. Any other um, observations, comments about any of that? I do want to go over the slides that I have prepared for this because there's additional information that we weren't able to cover. And then we'll get into the next, um, the next principle. I'm trying to remember what it is. It'd be number eight, wouldn't it? I know number nine is induction. I forget what number eight is. All right, let's close in prayer.